Revelation chapter 12. Let's hear the Lord's word. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought against his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God a day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, And went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord bless the reading from his word for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads for a moment in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Our loving Father in heaven, as we turn our our minds and our hearts to thy truth. We pray that the Holy Ghost will ultimately be the preacher this Lord's Day, that he will give wings to thy word that would fly into our souls, and will move within our hearts freely 
that thou wilt remove all the barriers that Satan would seek to put up to stop the progress of thy word, to keep it from finding a lodging place in the soil of our hearts so that we might bring forth much fruit to thy glory. Hide us behind the cross, we pray. Enable thy servant to make much of his master. May we see Jesus only. In his name we pray. Amen. And amen. So we're turning our attention once again to verse 11, where John hears a loud voice from heaven proclaiming, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The subject of my message from this text is overcoming our adversary, the devil. That's what it's about in a nutshell, overcoming our adversary, the devil. Whatever we may not understand about the mysteries of Revelation and about the mysteries of this particular chapter, one thing at least is clear from what we've read this morning. God's people are under continual attack from the devil. Like who didn't know that? But the things that we know so well, it seems, are the things we forget so quickly. The very last verse of this chapter states that the dragon, whom we saw last week was the devil, is making war with the church, the remnant of of the woman's seed who are described in these terms which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The question is why? Why is Satan the great arch enemy of us? You will remember that Lucifer at one time was a holy angel like all the other angels created by the hand of God. He was created a sinless, perfect being. And there, amidst all these myriad of bright angelic beings, this was the outstanding one. Lucifer, son of the morning, was his name. Lucifer, son of the morning. One of the greatest, ablest, and most powerful of them all. Obviously, something happened. What happened? What happened was what theologians refer to as the pre-cosmic fall. Not the fall of man. It preceded that. The pre-cosmic fall. Before the universe was ever created by God, there was a great calamity in heaven. Lucifer became ambitious. How that took place, we haven't a clue. Any more than we understand how Adam and Eve created perfect beings actually changed the inclination of their wills to be against God instead of for it. How Lucifer changed, we don't know. He became, however, dissatisfied, discontent with his position of subservience to God. And what he wanted was God to serve him. 
He grew weary of worshiping his creator, and he wanted his creator to worship him. You find that, of course, in the very life of Christ, when he offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, if he would just fall down and worship him. That's what he's after all along. So he went to war against God. His power to persuade was seen well before he he duped Eve in the garden because he convinced one-third of the angelic beings to follow him in his rebellion against God. In verse 4 of what we read, the great dragon, that's the devil, used his tail to draw the third part of the stars of heaven. Here is that symbolic language of revelation describing what the devil did in his failed effort to usurp God's throne. He dragged down with him a third of these great powers. He somehow convinced these other angels that they could do it. Combined strength, they'll overthrow Elohim. They became evil and, well, you know what happened. They were not going to overcome God and he cast them out of heaven and placed them under eternal condemnation. Ever since that time, Satan has been motivated by intense Infernal hatred for God. He lost. And he's never gotten over it. He has only one ambition. To fight against God and destroy all of his work. Satan has watched God for thousands of years take men. Men like him who have rebelled against their creator, who have denied God, hated God, warred against God, and yet he has seen God show them mercy. And he hates him for it. He hates God with a passion for doing that. He was not shown that mercy. So he's intent on taking as many Those people who've been shown mercy, take them as many down as he can. Matter of fact, he wants to take as many, whether they've been shown mercy or not, he wants to take them down to hell with him. And he is intent on ruining God's work. Frustrating God's plans. And ruining as many of God's people as he can. He wants to overcome them. So now God and his kingdom are fighting. There's war. That means that the devil has a plan. A plan to defeat and to destroy every Christian. And in that plan, he has many weapons, many tactics, Many devices that he tries to use to overcome the people of God. We face, in many ways, what the early Christians, what even the Christians of the 19th century didn't have to face. Up until 
I don't know, 75 years ago or so, a Christian's home was something of a safe haven from the world. But now the world comes into the home in many different ways, especially with the television and the internet. Because of this deepening darkness in the world, because of the increasing wickedness as things do wax worse and worse, especially in its, the world's readiness to put boldly on stage all of the filth of sin, to desensitize the people of God to that which God abominates, desensitize them to it. This war with Satan becomes particularly difficult for God's people. There was a point in time, even on the news, Herb and I were discussing this on the way to church this morning. There were certain words that you wouldn't hear, you wouldn't read, even when they tried to abbreviate them, that wouldn't even be thought of doing. Now it's common practice. All the time. So you find Christians listening to things that they have no business listening to. It's full of filthy language. And yet it's excused. It's okay. Somehow we think we turn that off when it comes across our eyes or our ears. But that doesn't happen. All it shows you in this tactic, this war with the saints... Satan has desensitized Christ's people. It doesn't change the sin at all. It doesn't change the evilness of it at all. It just shows the power of Satan as he seeks to ruin our ability to be lights in a dark world, to be witnesses that will overcome the devil. The early church didn't face that kind of onslaught. Not so now. We have to understand the nature of the problem and of the opposition that faces us. What we have to realize, and not just on a Sunday morning, once in a while when the sermon's brought up, it deals with it. We have to realize that we are called in the Christian life to a battle, not a place of ease. Warfare, to wrestling, to struggling, to fighting. Satan is nonstop, and so must we be. To be forewarned, as you know, is to be forearmed. And that's half the battle in itself. Just to be aware, I'm in a battle. Today, in this service, there's a battle. There's a war taking place. We are deceived if we don't think that Satan is not trying to steal away the word of truth as it's being preached. He doesn't care what it takes, just so it doesn't find a lodging place in our souls. Last Lord's Day, we only considered the description of our adversary. We said that he was a strong enemy, a slanderous 
adversary and a subtle one. Perhaps that being the most dangerous part of his approach. It's subtlety when you don't even realize what's going on. We must know who it is that we have to overcome. But turning from that description, I want to consider in the second place this morning the design of our adversary, the design of our adversary. Uh, I noted last Lord's Day that he is depicted as a dragon to indicate not only that we are dealing with an enemy that is powerful, but a dragon because he is one that is aggressive and very deadly. Because what the devil wants to do is to destroy. Apollyon is one of his names. The destroyer, that's what it means. Destroy. Certainly he wants to destroy the souls of men for all eternity. He delights in doing that. But he also wants to destroy, to, to wreck and to ruin the people of God as much as he can. Well, he can destroy our souls because they are kept safe and secure in the hand of Christ. He can certainly overwhelm us and leave us as good as destroyed. How many Christians do you know of who've had their testimony? This is very much about testimony. The very verse says it. Have had their testimony ruined. Ruined. It's real. I should point out that the great objective of Christ is the full and final salvation of all his people, an objective that he will not fail in. Therefore, the reverse is true of the devil, the great enemy of Jesus Christ. If Christ is intent on a full and final salvation, the devil is intent on stopping that from happening. Now, let me, let me underscore the several key things that which our adversary, the devil, seeks especially to destroy and so leave the believer confined, locked up in a dungeon of defeat and virtual uselessness to his great end in life, which is to glorify God and to enjoy him. The greater success he has at destroying these elements of our Christian life, the greater his success is at wounding and weakening us in the battle. The summary of all of these aspects of the Christian life could be found in one word, holiness. That's what he wants destroyed. Our separateness from sin, our separateness from the world. If we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ, if that aim, that target is perfect Christ-likeness, you can be dead on shore that that's what Satan wants to ruin, that we do not look like Jesus Christ, that we do not reflect his image in how we live our lives in this world. Holiness is all about Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness is all about obeying the commandments, keeping his sayings. Walking in the light as he is in the light. 
And that's what Satan wants to ruin. But let's break it down because holiness can be left there and goes one ear out the other. What are the aspects, the elements of holiness? What is, he, what is the devil out to ruin, to destroy? First, he seeks to ruin our hope. Our hope. At one time, we were without hope in this world because we were without Christ. If Christ is not your Savior, you are currently without hope in this world. You may hope for heaven, but without Christ, you have no hope of heaven. You may hope for a quiet and peaceable life, but without Christ, you will not have a quiet and peaceable life. Hope is something which God gave us when he redeemed us. Hope. A sure hope. Not a maybe so. But a hope. A hope that is present. Hope that is ongoing. A hope that is future. We have a hope of a better place. We have a hope of heaven after we die. We have this sure hope about how all of this works out. We have the hope about the real end of all things. But Satan wants to destroy our hope. You see, we hope because we believe in God. We believe in this book that's sitting upon your lap right now. Faith in the word of God. This is our hope. Christ is our hope. It's when someone loses all hope, you'll find they put a gun to their head or they overdose or whatever way they choose to leave this world. They no longer have any hope. They have despaired of life. And that's exactly where Satan wants to bring you. And he does bring God's people to that point. Elijah was there sitting under the juniper tree. I just want to die. Lord, take my life. I'm not any better than my father's. He wanted to die. Christians can be found in that. It was just the devil telling Elijah... It's hopeless. Jezebel has the upper hand. All that you preached for, all that you prayed for, all that you labored for has gone up in smoke. You thought that the falling of the fire was going to change this land and it didn't happen. Forget about it. You just need to give up. No, the devil was looking to ruin his hope. He's the liar. The father of lies. He lied to Eve. Hath God said. The old tactic. The old, old tactic. Doubt the word. Doubt the truth. Believe the lie. Doubt the truth. Believe the lie. Doubt the truth. Believe the lie. Doubt the truth. He hammers that again and again in so many ways and from so many directions. I'll tell you one thing. You find yourself filled with hopelessness about anything. Hopelessness. Why? Ask yourself why. Has God lied to you? Has he given you a promise and it's not going to hold good? Who are you listening to? Who? That's the devil. He's so subtle. 
He seeks to destroy our helps. By that, I'm referring, of course, to those helps to grace that God has given to his people. The means, the, the channels through which the Lord imparts spiritual power, that which the Lord, through which he grows the gifts of the Spirit that are given to us, they're there, but they have to grow the love and the joy and the peace and the goodness and the meekness and the temperance and the long-suffering. They don't just, okay, I don't have to tend the garden. I don't have to water the vegetables. The grass here doesn't do very well unless you water it. I was going to tell Herb yesterday, brother, your grass is under stress right now. You can tell it. If you know grass, it just, before it ever gets brown, there's an effect that has upon it. It's, it's weakening, it's under stress, and you've got to water it. As soon as you water it, it just perks right up again, and the, the, it's green again, and flourishes again. And do, do you think it's any different with the fruit of the Spirit? It'll never die out altogether, it can, because it's the fruit of the Spirit. He gives this. He imparts it. But all oh, it can certainly wither away if the means of grace are neglected. You've heard this a million times, and I hope you hear it a million more. If there's one thing the devil seeks to destroy and ruin, it's you making use of the means of grace. It is you keeping you away from the Bible, keeping you away from taking the, the needful time, not just to read the assigned portion but to actually think about it and to think upon it and to muse over it, to draw from it what you could enjoy, things that you would miss if you just didn't take the time, you didn't spend the time upon dwelling upon the word of God. That man hath, as the Psalter puts it, sings it, that man hath perfect blessedness that walketh not astray, Right, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. There's a reason you and I find it a struggle to get engaged in consistent, earnest prayer. There's a reason for it. Cowper saw it when he wrote, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. He understood that. He fears the child of God who seeks the Lord because God said, you will seek me and ye shall find me when you search for me with all your heart. That's a promise. He doesn't lie. It's when we search for him with all of our heart. I say it as gently and as kindly as I can. You have a great need as a little work. If ever there is a time when you need to come together for prayer, and I mean special prayer, 
not just your Wednesday night prayer meeting. I'm talking about special seasons of prayer. It is now. It is seeking God. I will tell you that if you do not, it only bodes for rough, rough times. Much rougher than you're seeing now. God has made it so clear. The way it's going to hum about is through earnest, ongoing prayer. Must be done. The devil wants that ruined. Destroyed. Hence you find in this day the disappearance of real prayer meetings in churches. Well, they may have crowds coming out, but not earnest crying to God in prayer. I may have mentioned this before. My my times here are so much so spread apart. I can't remember what I said, but I've raising seven children, you know when they really are earnest about something that they want. You can hear it in their voice. You can see it on their face. It's no different with God's people. You can hear it in the voice whether it's there or it's not there. You can see it on their face. But they really, really want something. Satan doesn't want that to take place. Not for a moment. That's why it's so hard to pray. He seeks to destroy not only your hope and your helps, but your heart. I mean, of course, the heart as the seat of love. The constant aim is to get us to leave our first love. Interestingly enough, there are no coincidences with God. This reading was set up before the foundation of the world, but... I was going to be mentioning this in this message, and we're going to be reading Revelation chapter 2 in the scripture lesson that talks about the church at Ephesus leaving their first love. The devil was at work. Oh, they were orthodox. They they tried the would-be apostles and found them to be liars. They were false, phony, fake, and they got rid of them. Good for them. Good on them. They should have. But I had somewhat against you, Christ said. You've left your first love. You're orthodox. You're separated. But I have seen your heart chill. It used to be warm for me. I was the most important thing to you in the world. You you couldn't wait to spend time with me. You, You couldn't wait to read my word. But now I'm like third or fourth place in importance to you. I'm not your top priority. You're like Martha, who, who was so consumed with serving in the kitchen. And yet, you want me to tell Mary to stop doing this, sitting at my feet? She hath chosen, chosen the better part, and I'm not taking it from her. What was going on? Chilling the love. Anything that the devil can do 
to chill our hearts, he will do it. Anything. So you can ask yourself, after some activity, whatever it is, did, did, did that chill me? Did that chill my soul? Did, did that chill my heart? Was, was it a help to me or was it a hindrance to me? Did that encourage me in being the witness and, and being the light and, and being the, the, the help where I could be to my husband, to my wife, to my children, to my church, to those people I work with? It, has that helped me or has that hindered me? And if you find it's hindered you, you can, I know it, it's the devil's at work. He's come in with a tactic because he wants to destroy my affections. He wants me to put them on things on the earth, Colossians chapter 2, and not on things above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. And so when the hearts are like that, they're chill and there's a, there's a hardness that comes over them and it's like the word of God just bounces off. You hear the truth, but it doesn't affect the heart. It might educate, it might illuminate the understanding, but there is no effect upon the heart. And when the heart is not affected, there's not going to be any change in the life. No change in the life. Because it hasn't reached the heart, because the heart has grown cold. The devil is quite happy to have God's people planning and scheming all kinds of things to gain wealth and prestige and power and health, physical health. Because he knows if they're doing that, they're not planning and scheming to get rich in spiritual treasure. He knows that. So let's say you're in the financial world, that's your livelihood. You'll be quite content if you read all kinds of books about accounting or uh, getting wealth, business dealings, as long as you don't pay any mind to the word of God. As long as you spend your time reading something else more than you would read the scripture. He's quite okay if you go to the gym for an hour, but you don't go to the closet for an hour to pray. He's okay with that. Ah, they're laying up for themselves treasures on earth but not treasures in heaven. He seeks to destroy something else, and that is our humility. Our humility. You know he appealed to, to that with Eve. God's not coming clean with you. He's not telling you the truth. He knows that the day you eat of this truth, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Ah, then when Eve saw it was good, lovely, good food, and will make you wise, she ate. 
That was pride. Pride. Pride has been the ruination of many a Christian and many a church. Pride. It casts Satan down from heaven and has cast many an eminent believer down from a place of usefulness to the church. Pride was the chief culprit. Self. Me. My wants. My thoughts. My plans. My wishes. It's all about me. And Satan has subtly robbed us of seeing that it's not all about me. It's not all about you. It's all about Christ. It's all about his glory. It's all about his will. It's all about his word. The most, the, the most dangerous thing about pride is its ability to blind us to it. We don't even see that we're proud because pride has blinded our eyes. Paul warned Timothy about ordaining men for the office of elder who are too young and too immature. They were not spiritually mature. They were newbies. I've been saved that don't don't bring them into office. Why? Because they would be exposed to the sin of being puffed up with pride in their position. And thus, quote, he said, fall into the condemnation of the devil. Humility. It seems to be a rare and rare element in the church today. The servant's mindset. The, of course, you know, it only flows out because love, love, the heart being chilled. Love is always a servant. Love, when you love someone, it's not just about emotions, feelings for somebody. It's, it's about looking whatever you can do to benefit them. That's what love is. Love acts to benefit the one it loves. It does not want to be a detractor, to be unbeneficial. It does not want to be a liability, but an asset to the one or ones who are being loved. But of course, when love is for self, then you don't really care about anybody else but yourself. And it's all about benefiting me. What's it going to benefit me and benefit me and benefit me? That's not love talking. Not real love. Love is about benefiting the people you love. Not harming them. Humility. That's why my next thought about what the devil wants to ruin and destroy in the Christian's life is our harmony. Our harmony. The, the Lord Jesus said that the devil 
when he was accused, accused of casting out Satan by the power of Beelzebub, he totally mocked their, their proposition because Satan, a house divided against itself, will not stand. It would be absolute ludicrous for Satan to actually cast out his demons from people. He's fighting against them. He's not going to do that. He's no dummy. Your, your theory is completely false. A house divided against itself will not stand. And the devil will seek to bring disunity into every area of the Christian's life. He'll seek to bring disunity between husband and wife, between parents and children, between church members. He just wants to separate. Why? Because the point Jesus Christ makes in John 17, that they all might be one. United together, endeavoring to guard, to keep, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's not something we create. We don't do that. We don't create the unity. It's something, however, that we guard, endeavoring, striving to guard the Spirit of unity in the bond, the glue of peace. That's what He wants to destroy. That's why you fight. You husbands and wives ever had a fight? Cowards. Own up to it. You never had a disagreement with your spouse? With your parents? Unkind words are said? Unkind actions? Why? Only by pride cometh contention. Humility brings unity. Paul was dealing with that in the church at Philippi. Humility brings unity. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who thought it not robbery, something to be held on to at all costs, to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in the fashion of a man, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's humility. He humbled himself. And he's using that very illustration, that very gospel truth to deal with the need for humility in the Philippian church, the need for harmony. So it is in our homes. We fall out. Self has gotten in the way. Self-love. It's about me. It's not about the other person. It's about me. And we dig in our heels. They're going to need to apologize to me. I'm not budging. Do you hear yourself? Do you hear yourself? I'm so glad our Savior does not treat us like that. I'm so glad. Matter of fact, you want to know why we go to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Without us perhaps even realizing it, he came to us 
and our stubbornness and touched our hearts. And then we found ourselves, Lord, I'm sorry. Had he not done that, we would have stayed exactly where we were. Hmm. He doesn't care how he does it or who he uses, what situations he can bring about. He just wants disruption in the unity. Because he knows, as Christ said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. It is impossible. Remember that in your marriages. Remember that in your families. Remember that in your church. Of course, he also seeks to destroy our happiness. The joy of the Lord, said Nehemiah one day to a people who were mourning, crying their eyes out. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is our strength. Some people are prone to look at the darker side of things. They find themselves downcast. Sometimes there are truly mental issues there. And if there's truly a a physical, mental issue in that case, then I have not one ounce of a problem of dealing medically with the issue. None. I am not, for one, going to ascribe that every time there is a believer who's suffering from depression, it's a spiritual matter. I don't hold to that view. I know people, and I know it's a mental issue. It's a physical issue. It is not spiritual. But oh, so often, so often, it's not... It's not a brain problem. It's a heart problem. And we, by our makeup, have these tendencies to look more on the dark side than the bright side. It's partly cloudy, not partly sunny. We expect the worst to happen. We look for it. We don't expect all things to work together for good to them that love God. We don't expect that to happen. And, and, and because that's one of the great tactics of God's people, to discourage them and to depress them and to lead them to despair, he's trying to work constantly to rob us of our joy, to do those things that he knows will impact our happiness. I'll get them miserable. Because, you know, unhappy Christians just aren't very useful. They're not very good advertisements for the gospel, not for the church, because they're always going around, you know, long in face. And what they start doing is looking for things apart from the Lord to make them happy. They depend on circumstances to make them happy. They go here, they go there, they buy this, they buy that. That's going to make me happy. But it doesn't last never lasts, doesn't work. How many of you as kids were happy on Christmas morning? You couldn't wait. Mom and dad kept you in bed until at least the dawn. 
And you tore down the stairs and opened up all those gifts. Oh, look, you're you're happy. How happy. And by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it's over. Well, that happiness was short-lived. We all know it's true. But it's also true in the spiritual realm. We look in all the wrong places for joy and for happiness when it's only found in the Lord. Not in circumstances, not in things, but the Lord. That is the only way you'll rejoice when there's nothing around you to rejoice in. When everything is black as black can be. When everything that you love has been taken from you. There is only one way you can rejoice, and that's in the Lord. The devil knows it, and he seeks to ruin your happiness. Which leads me on to say that he also seeks to destroy our hallelujahs. If I can keep with the alliteration, bear with me. He seeks to destroy our hallelujahs. More and more I see what God wants us to do, and that is to praise him, to praise him, to bless him, to thank him, to sing to him. He wants that, not just on Sunday mornings at church and Sunday nights at church, but all the time to praise him. We were made for that, made to glorify And the devil does not want us to be a people who shout their hallelujahs. I saw an inter... It was a roundtable discussion years ago. Dr. Paisley was the center of it. Dr. Cairns was the moderator that night. A number of ministers up around the table, along with his wife, Eileen Paisley, was up there. And it was a time when the Lord began to move in Ulster... And uh, the, the Dr. Paisley was at the pastor of what was Raven Hill Road Church. It became later Martyrs Memorial, that area did. But the Lord, there was an all-night, 32-hour prayer meeting. These men, just a handful of men were praying. And as the Lord came down in the prayer meeting. They knew something was different when, when we called him the doc. Came in the back of the church that Sabbath morning. It was all night, Friday through Saturday. He's going to preach on Sunday morning. At the back, he's walking down the aisle. Hallelujah! He's shouting out as he walks. Can you imagine these staid Presbyterians hearing their minister shout hallelujah as he's walking down the aisle? His whole ministry was transformed. Totally transformed. He doesn't want us shouting hallelujah. Praise the Lord. No, he would rather have us complaining Murmuring about this and that and the other thing. Not hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's what God wants. That's what Satan wants to destroy. Now, third and finally, the defeat of our adversary. The defeat of our adversary. His description, his design... And now his defeat. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. 
The first thing that statement tells me is that we will never be able to defeat the devil in our own strength. We will never be able to do that. We shall overcome Satan. That is very true. But we will overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That's the point. We cannot fight, let alone win this war in our own strength because every believer in and of himself is absolute weakness. We're a massive weakness. Look at how long we've been saved, how much Bible we know. We're a massive weakness. If you want to get a sight of just how weak you really are when it comes to this matter of Christian warfare, just ponder for a moment or two the power of Satan in history. Let's go way back to to the beginning at the Bible and take a long, hard look at Adam and Eve. As I said, they were sinless. They were perfect beings in a perfect environment. But Eve was so easily deceived by the devil. She had to have been brilliant, you know. She's a perfect woman. Perfect in every way. A mind that you and I can't begin to comprehend. And yet she was so easily ensnared by the devil's lies. She did not see through it. Easy peasy. And then there was Adam. He saw his wife, what had happened. And yet he was easily persuaded to follow his wife into rebellion against God. Two perfect beings created in the image of God. And if Adam, with a perfect heart, in a perfect environment, fell by the exercise of the devil's powers, who are you and I to think that we can stand against him? That we can take him on? And we can beat him at his own game? That we can actually indulge ourselves in his devices, his temptations, and it's going to be all right. To even think that way shows how powerful he actually is. That we can play with sin and not get burned. That we can indulge entertaining ourselves and dream that it won't impact our spiritual lives. But then take a walk down the quarters of time and look at all of the Old Testament saints, the patriarchs, the godly kings, the prophets. All of them fall prey to the devil's tactics one time or another. But how about your own experience? Why have you been duped by the devil on far than more than one occasion? Why is that? He got you. And you fell. And you sinned. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. The big three. Why? 
What happened to your resolutions and your resolves? Things are going to be different now. Why do you so often find yourself in the place of repentance? So often. Why are you sometimes attacked with feelings of utter hopelessness and almost despair where you would rather be dead than alive in spite of everything that God tells you in his word that you have no reason to feel that way? Why? It is simply due to the plain fact that we are nothing more than weak, earthen vessels of clay, and that we have no might in ourselves for this battle with Satan. That's what Luther meant when he said, on earth is not his equal. I stress the fact that we cannot overcome Satan in our own strength because it's only when that becomes a heart conviction that we look for help elsewhere. We abandon looking to ourselves to overcome. And we get serious, we get really serious about going somewhere else for help. This is a spiritual battle, and a spiritual battle must be fought in a spiritual manner. And therefore, you can't depend upon your good intentions and your resolutions and your resolves. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? So number one, we do not have the ability in ourselves to overcome him. Number two, Satan's defeat is assured for every believer through the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of it all. It's assured, the victory, the overcoming is assured through the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. And they overcame him through the blood of the Lamb. That text brings us into direct contact with the one weapon against which the devil has no power, the blood of Christ that was poured out upon Calvary to atone for our sin. That is the one weapon he has no ability to overcome. He can overcome your resolutions. He can overcome your promises. All those things, it's like nothing to him, but not the bloodshedding of Christ. Three things, and I'm done. First, this being true, account Christ's victory over Satan through his death as your victory. It's all about the mind looking at things how you should be looking at them. I, you and I must account, we must view Christ's victory over the devil as our victory over the devil. It's a fact. He didn't want you to believe that. But when Christ said finished, he was stating very plainly that I have completed the work that my father sent me to do. And that was to cover over, to atone for, to hide from the law of God all of the sins of my people. 
Every last one of them. Hidden away from his sight, the Bible says, buried in the deepest sea, cast behind his back, blotted out like a thick cloud, my friends. All the language says they're away, they're sent away, they're done. And he'll never, therefore, treat us as if those sins were still there. He will always treat us, always treat us as a people whose sins have already been covered. That's so critical to us overcoming the devil, to overcoming his tactics and his subtleties and his ways he has of ruining all those things we talked about a moment ago. Now, Hebrews 2.14 The apostle says the Lord's purpose in dying was that through death he, Christ, might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. The word destroy does not mean annihilate. It means to render powerless and ineffective. In other words, Christ has so completely, he has so completely vanquished the devil through his atoning death that he will not and cannot ultimately prevail against Christ's people. Colossians 2.15. Listen, Christ has spoiled principalities. The word spoiled means disarmed. He has disarmed principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly. It means he put them to open shame. He disarmed them. He put them to open shame, triumphing over them in it or in the cross. Triumph. How did he triumph? He triumphed by becoming bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He triumphed by all the suffering. He triumphed by, as a man, obeying every jot and tittle of the law that we would never obey. And he did it in our stead. Because we couldn't. But he did. He could and he did. He rendered an obedience that you and I could never render to God. And God was satisfied with that. If he had not been satisfied with Christ's life, With every day, every moment, every hour of his life, he could not be satisfied with his death. It took a perfect man to die on Calvary. And Christ was the perfect God-man who died. He did all we couldn't do, and he suffered what we ought to have suffered. His blood, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and his blood was shed. It was poured out. Because God said, that's the way, that pouring out of my son's life is going to mean, be the means of me giving life, eternal life, to my elect, to my people. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man or devil pluck them out of my father's hand. My father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man shall pluck them out of my hand. They are not going to lose. I have already won. I'm the victor. I'm their savior. I'm their redeemer. Satan will not prevail over them because I have already prevailed over him. I did it as their representative. I did it in their stead because they couldn't. And I pitied them. I pitied them. What 
But that means, brothers and sisters, in Christ, we have already overcome. We have already overcome. It's a done deal. Oh, there'll be battles. There'll be warring. There'll be fighting. There'll be ups and there'll be downs. There'll be wins and there'll be losses. But this battle, this battle, it's done. You must account that to be so. You must think that way. He would have you believe that he's going to beat you. He's going to win. But don't forget he's a liar. He never speaks the truth. Second thing. Overcome Satan's accusations by the blood of Christ. The name that comes up here in this chapter, he's the accuser of the brethren, the slanderer of the brethren. He's the fault finder. He's great at doing it. He knows your faults better than you do. He knows how to play you. It's very true that the name devil means false accuser. And he's very good at slandering us and falsely accusing us before God, just like he did with Job. That's all so true. False accusations. But let's be honest. We give the devil plenty of ammunition to use against us in this war. He doesn't have to conjure up trumped charges against us. We have plenty of actual transgressions that we commit every day in thought and word and deed that he will bring to plague our conscience with guilt. Because that's where he wants your focus, upon your sins, upon all that's wrong with you. He knows, he knows your secret sins that no one else knows about. Why does he know them? Because he was the one that played such a large role in getting you to sin secretly. That's why he knows. Sins you thought you had forgotten about, he brings back to your memory. And you wince. Don't you? Ever since you became a child of God, he's taken note of every failure, of every temptation to which you succumbed, every transgression. And when, for whatever reason, you find yourself discouraged, and depressed and defeated, he comes alongside at the worst possible moment and arraigns you in his court and reads out your crimes against God and he tries to convict you of being a hypocrite, a counterfeit, an apostate. That's what Job's friends were doing when Job was at his lowest. His lowest. 
Job, you're a deceiver. You lost your kids because of it. It's your fault they're dead. God's punishing you for your hypocrisies. Boy, do you see the maliciousness of Satan. The man is sitting there at the dump, covered in boils and agonizing pain. He's lost ten of his children. He's lost his wealth. He's lost everything but his wife. And even she says, curse God and die. And now these friends come along and accuse him of being a hypocrite. That's the mastermind of Satan at work. But that's what he does to us. Brings the accusations. Comes with his fault finding. Spreads it all out. He reminds us of how often we've wandered from God. Of how cold we are in prayer. Of how dead our desire for God is. He would convince you and me that we're losers. We're of no usefulness to to God. We're of no usefulness to this church. We're of no usefulness to our family. And so he would weigh you down with guilt and hopelessness. Hopelessness takes away the happiness. Oh, such power. It is right then and there you are given the opportunity to overcome by the blood of the Lamb right at that point. They overcame him in this war by the blood of the Lamb. They resisted the devil at this point and he fled. When Satan is roaring loud with his Accusations. Don't be ashamed. Don't be slow. To go and speak to the Lord and say, Lord, I have an accuser against me right now. But Lord, I have an advocate. Speak for me, Lord Jesus. Because I can't speak for myself. All he says... It's true, and there's more. But your blood was shed to cover all these sins. You've already dealt with them. What the advocate do? What, what, does the, what does the high priest do? What the high priest always did? He pleads his own blood. Father, forgive them. I shed my blood for them, and I cannot lose them. And I will not lose them. I can't bear to see that one of mine cast away. All those sins were laid on me and you punished me. You punished those sins and me. I paid it all. And so the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's what you ought to do. That's how you overcome every time. You don't simply wait till time passes and you feel a bit better. Now, that's not how you overcome. 
You overcome by the blood of the Lamb. That's why I have in my study a hand-lettered stanza of a hymn. Had it for years. Often looked upon it. Though the restless foe accuses, sins recounting like a flood, every charge my God refuses, Christ has answered with his blood. That's overcoming by the blood of the Lamb. It doesn't get more real than this. It's not just something that makes for gospel preaching. It makes for gospel living. The blood atonement, it's the only weapon that's going to work. No matter what the situation, it's the only weapon that will work against the devil's devices. That's how we resist them. Finally, Satan's defeat is assured through our witness to the blood. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That word means witness, by the word of their witness. So you see, don't you, that as we live in this world, as we bear witness by our living to the work of Jesus Christ, to the cross of Christ, to the blood atonement of Christ, the devil is defeated. We bear light in the darkness, and he has no answer to it. We're going to find out one day how, how much our witnessing of Jesus Christ to Jesus Christ has had the impact of defeating the devil in this world, how it overcame him. That's the fact. We're walking around as witnesses. You go to work, in your family, here in church. We're bearing witness, we should be, to Christ, to the blood atonement, to the victory. So we're not, we're not defeated, are we? we? We haven't been conquered. As a matter of fact, the word of God says plainly, we are presently more than conquerors. We're more than that. That means the conquering has been done. Yep, battles the rest of your life. Plan on it. But you know what I know? I know how it's going to end. I know how all this is going to end. I know that all the losses and all the crosses, all the setbacks, all the victories, all the defeats, I know how it's all going to end. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's how it ends. So, in the spiritualized form of it, spiritualized, Don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy in the Lord. May God read his word on our hearts for his namesake. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank thee that thou hast taught us from cover to cover not to worry, not to be filled with anxiety, but to be happy.
Thou dost even use that happiness as a motivation to seek thee. Blessed are they that do this and that and the other thing. We thank thee thou dost set that before us, that joy before us. Now take thy word this day, we pray, and bury it deep in our souls. Make it something that we talk about with each other, that we share with others. Most of all, Lord, may this word always be on the tip of our tongue as we live out in this world as thy witnesses. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.